welcome to Crime Time with Maggie Sten. What you're going to be listening to is a series of episodes called The Times Aren't Changing, They Have Changed. With me is Margaret Canine of Senior Counsel, and for a change, I have a lot of questions to ask her. Hello, Margaret. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for paying me the honour of wanting to speak to me. Well, for those of you who don't know Margaret, she's had an illustrious career spanning decades. Um, She's been a solicitor, barrister, prosecutor, commissioner, lecturer, and now she's defence counsel. As well as all that, she is a wife, a mother, and a grandmother. That's right. Some oh, pe- no wonder I'm bloody tired. <laughs> Some people may say you've got it all. So we'll talk about that a bit later. But, Margaret, what is fascinating is the time that you came to law. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, please? Yes. I, I grew up in the southwestern suburbs of Sydney. In in kindergarten, there were 60 to 70 kids in the class, and yet we all learned how to read uh, with one um, poor nun of a teacher, uh, as in a, a Catholic religious nun. Right. And uh, so so things were pretty uh, pretty basic uh, and in, in that upbringing. But uh, I do remember this all through my life. My father used to say, well, it doesn't really matter how hard you study because when you go to work or – if you go to un- university, uh, there'll be boys and men there, so it'll be no use at all because you won't be able to compete. But study if you like, but you're wasting your time. Did he want you to study? I, I think that may have been his way of making me do it. But as as history uh, transpired, uh, he d- it, he had some funny ways of making me do things because when the time came, uh, he uh, had he found fault with my behaviour in. Uh, in various moral areas, uh, plus drinking, which I thought he'd like, uh, because he did, and and I was kicked out of home right after the HSC, and so that's why I went into the public service and did law part time at, at at night. You went to Santa Sabina, yes. So that was predominantly nuns. Yeah, yes, that was a lot of nuns in those days. That was my high school, and and that was much more uh, luxurious than the primary days at Belmore. I think in those days, I think public schools weren't too luxurious either. No, that's We true. had a teacher called Mrs. Rogers who used to hit us with a ruler as we walked into the classroom in case we did anything wrong that day. Yes, yes, it was. Um, and, and what's more, our parents were all for it, weren't they? Oh, if I came home and said the teacher um, hit me, I'd get hit again. Correct. <laughs> Was, that's the way it went. So you learned not to say anything. Yes. And in fact, when the inspector came, he said to one of the girls, you write beautifully. How does Mrs. Rogers get you to write like that? Oh, she hits us, said the girl. <laughs> uh, good job too, <laughs> Exactly, me. yeah. So, all right, so when did you decide you wanted to do law? Probably early in high school because I liked doing debating. I mean, I, I didn't really like doing debating and oratory, but I, I liked forcing myself to do it. It was difficult to uh, get over the nerves and, and so on, but I was also pretty good at English, so law seemed to be the natural thing to do. Because in those days there weren't many lawyers. We had our Marla Perlmans and Mary Gordon, but they were few and far between. That's right. That, but I, I just thought, um, well, I, I should be able to have a go at it. Uh, maybe I won't do any good, but I'll try. 
So when you left school, you said you went into the public service? Yes. What part I, of the I public? was in the Attorney General's Department and I was a clerk, uh, a Class A clerk. That was in 1977. And the same day as I started there, I started the brand new law course at the Institute of Technology, which is now UTS. Right. I was in the first intake of that faculty and I'm pretty proud of that. But at work, the, the blokes were, were saying to me, you're doing law at the tech Yes. They'd never heard of it. Yes, yeah. Well, it was called the tech then. It was was the Institute of Technology, now it's the university. Yes. Yeah. So how many women were in your class? 10% were in of, of the 150. And uh, um, so that was about – there were 15 of us and I was the youngest of the 150 because it was meant to be a part-time course. And the dean told me uh, pretty kindly, but he said, I don't think you'll – you'll have the maturity to stick at it. Jeff, Jeffrey Bartholomew? That's it. Yes. Yes. Who used to hold his jurisprudence lectures in the pub. Correct, at I the went century. To the, I went to the same university. <laughs> yes, but he he said, oh, I don't think – anyway, good on you for, for trying. But I was there at the end and um, perhaps 80 or 90% of the 150 weren't. So how many actually graduated? Um, about a dozen. That's very, very interesting. So at the time, you were working full-time? Yes. You were going to lectures at the University of Technology? Yes, I picked up a few subjects and finished in five years, and I managed to drink an awful lot of schooners of new at the same time. Oh, well, you did that at the century. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I was at that university three years after you, but I had started much earlier because I'm a few years older than you. So when I Never. first started, oh, it's just a few. So when I first started law in 1971, there were two girls in my class. And this was SAB, as it was called in those days. And the rest were all men. And there was, I think, about 200 in the class. But, you know, I did what people did in those days. I married my boss and he talked me out of continuing. Yes. And I then went back to the University of Technology years later. So I know all about that pub. All the jurisprudence lectures were there. Okay, so once you finish law, what then? Uh, I was by then uh, working at the Public Service Board of New South Wales, still in the public service. And because I had a law degree, I, I was able to start my advocacy career in the Industrial Commission and in the Government and Related Employees Appeal Tribunal, doing what were really like little mini trials in a way, not the criminal standard of proof, of course, but uh, in people who'd done things in the workplace and were and the employer wanted them sacked. So I was on the employer's side, right. which probably set me up for the ability to transfer after a while to after a few years, five or so, into the DPP or the clerk of the peace as it was then. Yes. Uh, so so uh, that was tremendous advocacy experience, uh, just running little matters, getting getting all the witnesses together. In those days, we had... Are you talking about the industrial the, or the DPP? The industrial right. commission yeah. was, was fantastic because people uh, facing loss of their jobs often engaged uh, senior counsel, uh, including QCs, uh, real, real, really senior counsel. So I, I got to be against them. Sometimes I wonder that they, they probably thought I was really hopeless, but I learnt a lot in, in that uh, period. And they're used to the employer's representative on the 
Appeals Tribunal was quite a stern fellow who worked with, with me at the Public Service Board, and he'd t- he'd come back and critique me, mm. um, at my advocacy where I where I went wrong, and it was hard at the time to hear it, but sure. it was the best thing for me, and uh, and but it was a very interesting period because I could could go around to the workplaces and gather witnesses I needed to prove. Uh, what would prove the case against some poor so-and-so. But, for example, uh, the interesting cases were corrective services officers and psych nurses in the Department of Health. They seemed to have the most, uh, the, the, na- the naughtiest careers, right. uh, letting their guns off, uh, sexual matters with patients or inmates. And, and so uh, that, that was a really um, interesting area to, to cut my teeth at a very young age, at, at just grad- graduating and um, early 20s. Wasn't it also the union labour firms that were representing those people? Yes, it was, yes. Interesting, because around the same time I was working for Taylor & Scott, well, which that was a union labour firm, so I was on the other side. Yes, that's right. Yes, well, they, they were quite often in it because they represented the public service unions. Yeah, and when you talk about a boss who used to criticise you, I had one that used to like throwing files at you if he didn't like what you did. Wow. Okay, how did you find men's reaction to you at, in the Industrial Commission? It was it was okay, really. Um, that they were encouraging. I, I found men pretty encouraging uh, all the way through. And uh, I, I must say, though, that some of the longer-running male bosses I had, um, al- although they're encouraging and appreciative of my work, tended to take the better cases to do. Right. Um, and so, so that, that would be the only criticism I would have that somehow they always ended up on the trips, on the, uh, with the great ca- cases or the, the noteworthy cases. Yeah. And, um, and, and I got the dregs and, and that, that same thing happened probably at, um, the DPP. Okay, so let's now move on to the DPP. What did you start off doing there? I was a senior solicitor in the child sexual assault uh, unit. I was chosen by, on a um, select, selection committee um, comprising two uh, men I knew from having done work for them and, and coming up th- years before through the Attorney General's Department and the woman on the panel who was the boss of the unit, the Child Sexual Assault Unit, was one Megan Latham. And we were, we were, and, and I was chosen to be her deputy in, in a, in the area of child sexual assault where we were doing great things to make it possible at last to prove cases against, uh, pedophiles. And in, in that, at that time, it was mainly incest cases, cases in, in families where fathers and stepfathers had, were the, were the miscreants. And up to that time, the law, was such that it was very difficult ever to uh, prove things to the criminal standard because children's evidence had to be corroborated and furthermore children weren't uh, and un- unsworn evidence was had to be corroborated too, and children weren't even competent uh, uh, before certain changes to the law in the mid eighties f- uh, to take an oath in in a court. Therefore, uh, their evidence would never be sufficient to prove a case of sexual assault. So we we uh, we were responsible for a lot of innovations in that area, including giving children a friend in court that ultimately became witness assistants but we used to do it as the solicitors then and um, 
because there were quite a few women involved in that area, it, it seemed to be a bit of a women's auxiliary to the whole thing. People used to say to me in a pejorative way, are you still doing those kiddie sex cases as though it wasn't really a part of the proper criminal law? Would it be true to say that the time you're talking about is the early 80s? Yes. That's correct, isn't it? Yes. Would Early to mid. Early to mid-80s. Would it be true to say that society at the time generally just didn't believe that those things were happening? That's exactly right. My own parents wouldn't believe it, which didn't surprise me because uh, I too had been a victim of a um, of, of a serial predator who lived in our neighbourhood and had some family connections. And uh, when, when my sister and I, uh, when we were... 2020 or so went to tell mum. Mum just said, I'm not, no, I'm not believing it. Um, don't, you know, don't speak. And, and and it's, and if it happened, it's your fault for going near him and things like that. And we were talking about stuff that had happened when we were preschoolers and up to the age of seven in my case, which was when he died. But so I knew what it was like for children not to be believed from that era. Um, from from that I came from. It's very interesting you say that because I have a friend who is a barrister of long standing, and he does a lot of the claims for the people that came out in the Royal Commission against priests in the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And his theory is that the reason why these people were actually coming forward to the Royal Commission and saying those things when some of them are in their sixties or 50s or 70s is because their mothers had died. Yes, yes, and that's Because true. their mothers would never believe it. A priest would never do that. Yes, there was that too. And and some, some of them uh, were reluctant for their mothers to know. If they had kindly believing mothers, they didn't want them to know and be yes. so sad about it. They didn't want their mothers to lose their faith or to be upset with the church because it meant so much to them. He so says they, exactly the same thing. Yes, yes. I've yeah. spoken to many of those people, of course, yeah. in the course of my my working life. Yes. Okay, so now we're in the DPP and it's you and Megan Latham and I think you said one other person. Oh, if you, uh, quite a big staff because I, I was she was in, in charge, I was the second in charge and we had maybe a dozen solicitors working um, under that who were sort of base grade solicitors. Right. And how long before you became a Crown? Um Four, four or five years I was there as a solicitor, I think. Yeah, four years. Were there men who were solicitors that were promoted before you? No, I can't really say there were. Um, I, there may be, maybe one or two, but um, uh, no, nothing stark. I, I was promoted pretty pretty swiftly. Right. Uh, who was to, the director? It then? was Reg Blanche, right. who knew us all very well. Yes, yes. And knew what we were doing and knew that um, not only was I sort of – I was in – court all every day at all different suburban courts. I was writing submissions. I was going around giving speeches about what innovation should take place and um, uh, going on press releases for the minister and so forth. So it, it was a reward for hard work and because he could see it. So he, he uh, that, that was pretty life-changing because at that time the Crown, prosecu- Crown Prosecutor's salary was double um, a, the senior solicitor in, in uh, which I became after Megan Latham became a Crown Prosecutor. I, I got her job um, and... How long was she a Crown Prosecutor? Um, she, oh, 
not not an awful long time, maybe four or five years before she was made a uh, district court yeah. judge. Mm. Um, yeah, in, look, from the outside looking in, Reg Blanche was one of the few directors, in my opinion, who really knew what his departments were doing. Yes. He, he right. really had his finger on the pulse. Oh, what a tremendous administrator as well as a great lawyer. I think we need him back. Oh, he was a person who taught us all that uh, we represent the community. We don't represent uh, a, an alleged victim. We represent the community and the community includes the accused. Uh, we have to do the, the right thing, uh, not just strive to win because we're on a side mm-hmm. uh, we're not we're not actually on a side we rep- we, uh, we as crown prosecutors as I was um, don't represent any individual but represent the whole community and are striving for justice just as he um, taught us that we don't celebrate a win I mean it's it's awful um, yes it, it's it's not not a happy thing uh, for some to see someone go to prison, and, uh, and it's just justice taking its course. And that's that was how we were all brought up in that initial phase of the DPP. And Nick Cowdery, to his great credit, continued that. Yes, yes. So now you're a Crown Prosecutor, and in your time as a Crown Prosecutor, you had some very high-profile cases. Mm, yes, um, yes. Let's talk about those. Yes, probably. Um, um, mainly for the first um, decade or so in in the sexual assault area, yes. which did come naturally to me, um, although it set me up for um, a degree of criticism from outsiders who would say that I get too close to victims. Yes, but, we'll get to that in yes. a minute. Because as far as the highs in your career, there have also been some incredible lows. Yes, but anyway, um, well, why, it, why not? Yeah, well... I think if you achieve that much, you're bound to have people want to bring you down. It just, yes. unfortunately, is human nature. I don't know why, but it seems to happen. Yeah, it is human nature, isn't it? It and, is. And um, people wanting to, you know, you and I, Maggie, uh, uh, would never spend one second plotting against someone to try to bring them down. We're far too busy doing our work and, and um, lengthening our own Zen line, as exactly. it were. Exactly. Who's Not got trying time? To, to break other people yeah. down so that they can stay just a bit above them. Yeah. Anyway, uh, but yes, the high-profile cases, I suppose um, one that sticks in my mind was was the series of pedophiles, but uh, personified by, best I suppose, by Dolly Dunn. And, and, and it harks back a bit to what we were saying about the reluctance of the community to accept that uh, any man would misconduct himself sexually with children because obviously um, most men and and nearly all women can't can possibly hardly accept that that could could happen unless it's happened to them Uh, then they really can there was another one that was tied up with him yes Uh, what was um uh there was um um philip Bell, uh, and I learned a lot about um, early pedophilia is, is from him. Is he the one who lived on the northern beaches? Uh, Philip Bell was in the eastern suburbs. Okay, because uh, there was uh, one on the northern yes, beaches. Yes, there was one called Tor Svensson up there who was a uh, – but but there was also – there was a third one, and I know who you're talking about, uh, among, with the Bell and, and Dunn uh, – 
he, and I, I prosecuted him too, and I remember saying that he took the took the crumbs from Bell's table. Uh, anyway, he, who cares that I can't remember his name? But going back to the feeling at the time, I was, and I'll never forget this because I was at a wedding and I was sitting at a table, people, and it happened to be the wedding of a extended family member of mine and there were all these people that were friends of theirs and one of them was a bosom buddy of this pedophile, the one whose name we can't remember, the one from the Northern Beaches. But at the time it was all over the newspapers. Well, these people saying, oh, you know, he's a wonderful man. Colin Fisk. That's it. He's a wonderful man and, you know, he paid the children's school fees. Mm. And and if you listen carefully, it was really all about these parents could dump their kids on this guy this guy paid for their schools and everyone was happy. That's right. And and if he initially he, one of his opening gambits with kids was he'd, he'd meet the boys and give them um, surfboards and all the things that yeah, kids like yes, and yeah. take them to um, pinball parlours and pay for everything. And then he'd say to one kid, um, I'll go to your place and I'll be his uncle and, that's, and yeah. vice versa at the other place. So a lot of the parents thought that, it was just, they were going with one boy's uncle and then they just and, – and boys loved the idea of at the age of 12, 13, 14 being able to do what they like all weekend, surf and gradu- and a bit of a bit of alcohol, a bit of drugs, a bit of pornography and that's how he, he groomed them. But with um, – with Dunn, Dunn had collected um, so many videos of him actually performing sexual acts upon very young children, or well, many ages, but even down to seven years of age who used to come to him and show how inured they were to it by dropping their own trousers and just um, uh, um, doing what they were used to doing for money, waved in, literally waved in front of their faces. And um, so, so these videos were were the proof of the of the acts. And uh, I was appearing before a judge, a judge who didn't want to see them. And I said, we, "These have got to be played. You've got to see them. And what's more, all the press here have to see them and report them, so that the public knows that this actually takes place. This really happens." And uh, so, so that's that's how it finally came to pass that people started to believe that um, middle-aged men could um, commit these absolute atrocities on tiny boys because it it was um, on a video. Okay, now let me ask you, I understand that those gang rape people, let's leave them aside because my view is they're very different to pedophilia. Yes, very. With pedophilia, these people got long sentences and that takes them off the street so they can't harm children. But do you think that jail is the answer for that long term? Um, I'm very sceptical that jail is the answer for many crimes, but at least jail takes people uh, away from yes. where they can do it again. Uh, it doesn't. It's not going to cure them. It's not going to change them because they can't be changed. That's it's something in their psyche that that's that's their sexual fetish that was set not, <laughs> so often by being the victims of pedophiles themselves at the at 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 a critical age. What what is your view of? Someone who, because the laws just keep getting tighter and tighter for all this and sentences keep getting longer and longer, the young man 
who is into pornography and then moves on to child pornography. And he's caught, he has no criminal record, he's 19 years old, and he's caught with a number of these images, and he gets 18 months jail. Mm. It's, it seems very, it, it seems extremely harsh, depending, of course, on the nature of the material, I suppose, the age of the people, because at 19, he, he might have had it since he was 16 or, and it, he might be in very, have been very close in age to whoever it is depicted on the, yes, that's right, on the material. But let's look, let's presume that it's all those things, but he came in contact with a, rotten magistrate who's tough on this stuff and he gets 18 months in jail. While in there, he meets a whole lot of other people who are in there for the same thing mm. and he gets a network going. Yes. What but, do you and, do then? Yeah, it's it's only made it far worse, hasn't it? And network, that, those, those people could network well before computers. Imagine yes. how well they can network now. Exactly. And as we've seen from um, Jeffrey Epstein, it reaches the highest echelons of society, so it's everywhere. It, it is. Um, it's. Oh, it's. It, I worry a lot about um, sending very young people to jail for for anything, really. But obviously, when it's some some violent offence that uh, makes them a danger, then that's the only option. But um, uh, may, maybe there'll have to be some some separate thing for this type if the courts get or if it's if we continue to see so many people um coming before the courts for this it's it's disturbing right, but but probably the, the the root cause of it all is pedophiles in the first place because yes. I, I i bet in most cases of children ha- or young men having this uh predilection it's it's been brought about by someone getting at them at a particular time i'm sure you're correct I'm sure, I'm sure because we're all products of our environment. Yes. But do you think that that could be helped by intensive counselling, treatment? And and growing maturity? Yes. Uh, maybe. It depends how much uh, how much their sexual uh, interest has been set by then. That, that's, that's how it seems to me um, because, uh, you know, if, if that's what you're into, that's what you're into. And I just, because we've only got a few minutes left in this session, so let's move on to the gang rape case. Yes, cases. Cases, yes. Now, oh, hang on, before we get to that, you also came under criticism for comments that you made about victims generally. Mm. Um well, yes, maybe generally, but was it – you're talking about the Sininian Stephen yes, lecture of yes, 2005. Yes. That, I, I think that the criticism was from someone who who continued to uh, – well, anyway, the criticism was initially from uh, John Marsden and Chris Murphy who hadn't read my lecture – um, and who were criticized, who were going off what they read in a telegraph report of what I'd said. And As you do. Y- yes, that's right. So they didn't stop to, to um, get the lecture. And so they caused me problems by complaining for a while. And that, that was, um, <laughs> That was used as a sort of a catapulted ahead when Charlie Waterstreet used it 
later on in the in the case of MG against R to have me taken off one of the retrials of one of the but but what what I was doing was just updating the students at the University of Newcastle on why the cases were still going ahead. And during the lecture, I didn't name any of these people. Uh, I didn't name any of the accused or any of the, at, at all. I used some initials. They all knew what I was talking about. But um, and and said and and gave a factual account of what had happened, where there had been um, retrials ordered and why they were still ha- limping on and why at that time some of the victim uh, victims, and I'll say victims because um, the, the, there were convictions and undoubtedly, <laughs> undoubtedly those poor girls were victims of someone even if you... No, they were definitely victims. Yes. I ended up doing some appeals on that, but yes. they were definitely victims. But they had to keep coming back and giving their evidence. So... It, it was good that um, we drew attention that I drew attention to that because then there was a change in legislation permitting complainants to have um, their evidence um, play, played back in retrials so that they didn't have to leave their life on hold for ye- the years and years and years that think so that was that was what I was asking for just a, a bit of a fair go for people who were, were undoubtedly victims but uh, so I got criticised, but the reason for the criticism, of course, was to distract me on having to having to deal with complaints and take me off my core work because some people didn't didn't like my success rate. Uh, when I say that uh, with a, as as an expression, that's um, not you know they didn't like that. Generally, um, the cases ended up in convictions. And, and in fact, that wasn't that a good thing that the DPP were running cases that generally ended up in convictions because in those days we were very serious about um, re- uh, re- well, reefing out the cases that did, shouldn't go ahead. certainly wasn't a good thing for Defence Council. Um, no, but... No, and I can true. tell you, having only done defence my entire life except for one case I did for the waterways or something where the guy zigzagged across a river... It was a big win if we had you opposite us on a case and then for some reason you couldn't do it. Everybody sort of went, yes, good, because you were fearless and you did have a success rate. Yeah, thanks. And I, I only prosecuted cases where there was plenty of evidence. Yes. Um, because I, I, for one, believed that prosecutors should not, uh, not go in, go on with cases where there was insufficient evidence. Yes. But, <laughs> As you know, not all prosecutors think that. Well, it seems to be the case now, unfortunately. No. It's just bad on. And, and in fact, I've, I've even heard this attitude from someone who's now gone from there. Um, well, why not just let the jury decide? To which, to which my answer was when I still was a Crown prosecutor, because that poor bloke has had to pay a hundred thousand dollars to defend himself. And the case is very weak. Yes. And it, and there's nothing there that should, should convince anyone beyond reasonable yeah. doubt. And we all know weak cases often get convictions, strong cases often get dismissals. Yes. Yes. There can be, yeah. a, there can be some. I mean, how often have you walked into a courtroom or, and you think you've got the best case in the world? And it turns out terrible, mm. or opposite. You think you've got the worst case. It is really good. Yes, that's that's true. Yeah, that, that's uh, that so often happens. Um, I often say to clients, "Look, a trial's a living thing. I really can't tell you. Yes, this is what I think's going to happen, but don't hold me to it." And especially because 
the prosecution's uh, facts often look so unassailable. But as as I've learnt in the almost four years I've been defence counsel now, the prosecution and the police only have a, a, a scaffold of information. When we meet our clients, things are not quite as they as yes. they se- seemed. Yes. Well, we'll we will get to that next session because that's the interesting. Part when you cross from what the defence called the dark side to the good side. Thank you very much. Thank it's you, been Maggie. Very interesting as always. Thank you, Maggie.